0: This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. With me today is Mr. Greg Siegel, founder and CEO of Organize to discuss organ procurement and transplantation policy reform. Greg, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Greg, or Mr. Siegel's bot, is of course posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, on August 3rd, Senate Finance held a full committee hearing titled A System in Need of Repair, Addressing Organizational Failures of the U.S. Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. In his opening statement, Finance Chairman Ron Wyden was unusually blunt. Two plus years of committee staff research led the chairman to open the hearing by characterizing the nation's organ procurement and transplant efforts as grossly mismanaged and incompetent. The effort led by federally contracted not for profit UNOS, United Network for Organ Sharing, does its job, Wyden stated, quote unquote, very poorly. This is because the committee found organ procurement and transplantation was rife with inefficiencies, medical errors, and poor leadership that combined led to widespread failure by organ procurement organizations, or OPOs, to meet even CMS performance standards not typically known for being particularly exacting. In sum, this performance largely explains why an estimated 6,000 Americans, disproportionately minorities, die annually awaiting an organ. With me again to discuss state of play and related policy reforms is Greg Siegel. Finally, listeners may recall I interviewed the twins, Alfred and Blair Sadler, in early June, in part to discuss their work at NIH in the late 60s in drafting the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. Okay, with that as background, uh, Greg, uh, standard opening oftentimes here is, can you briefly describe your organization's work and purpose?
1: Absolutely. So the the purpose is uh, inextricable from uh, its origin story. My father waited five years for uh, a heart transplant, was uh, lucky enough to receive one. And I don't use the word luck uh, or or, or lucky lightly. Uh, It was uh, as I continue to learn more about the system that I realized uh, just how, in Chairman Wyden's words, Uh, grossly, uh, mismanaged the system is, which leads to far too many Americans. 33 Americans die every day, uh, waiting for transplants. And, uh, that number is is candidly probably a gross understatement because that doesn't include, uh, other patients like my aunt, for example, who never even reached the waiting list and, and still die, uh, uh, when they would have benefited from a transplant. So with that, uh, personal connection to the issue, uh, it's sort of uh, an issue I couldn't put down, and I kept asking, uh, a, you know, questions, trying to figure out in what ways I could try to help other patient families like mine, and uh, with that. Uh preamble uh, uh, to my answer. I, I, I founded it organized as a patient advocacy nonprofit organization, uh, which is focused on structural and policy reforms to increase the supply of life-saving organ transplants every year. Uh, and from 2015 to, uh, to 2016, uh, we served uh, in a role uh, called the, uh, an innovator in residence position in the office of the Secretary of uh, Health and Human Services in D.C.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. So let's get into this uh, the national effort is alternatively, you could say, organized or highly bureaucratic. Uh, so uh, most uh, listeners, I imagine, are foreign to the, the details here. So can you briefly, again briefly, outline how organ procurement and transplant efforts are conducted or just provide sort of an overview of the process and the principal players? And I did mention, obviously, uh, both OPOs and uh, UNOS in the intro
1: sure and, and i'll take these in, in reverse order uh, and i'll do my job to advocate for patients when you advocate uh when you ask who the the players are right. i think far too often lost in this uh the spirit of your question was about who the regulated uh healthcare providers uh, and entities are uh, i think the most important player is patients and i think they are far too often lost uh, in uh, in these conversations but uh, to answer the spirit of your question uh, about who are, uh, how does it work in, in process? I'll start by saying most people I think misunderstand this, or I, I think most people unfamiliar have far too simplistic of a view. I, as I often do, you know, we'll talk to people about organ donation, and people will, uh, you know, be so quick to interrupt me and pull out the driver's license and show me, look, I'm part of the, I, I, I'm on board, I support this, I have this heart on my license, I registered at the DMB. Uh, and most people think that is the uh, end of the process and they Mm -hmm. will necessarily uh, become an organ donor. Uh, What people uh, don't understand or appreciate is, well, it's certainly important to register as an organ donor if that's what you're comfortable doing, or or, or certainly in either case, to make sure that your family knows what your wishes are. Uh, In practice, what happens is it's a small subset of deaths that medically qualify for organ donation it's you know uh, maybe three as that is uh, somewhat opaque on this but maybe three three and a half percent of deaths uh, is I think the best estimate I've seen uh qualify for organ donation medically that strokes traumas uh opioid overdoses is um, you know uh a clinical manner, uh, which, uh, would qualify for it. Those, th- those deaths, which, um, you know, when someone dies in that manner in a hospital, the role of the hospital is to, uh, refer the death to what's called the local OPO or organ procurement organization. OPOs are, uh, technically structured as nonprofits. They are, uh, government contractors whose responsibility is to respond to those referrals from the donor hospitals, uh, show up, talk to the family about organ donation um, uh, and then to, you know, if the family consents to donation, uh, then to, uh, facilitate the, you know, coordinate the recovery, uh, of those organs. And an important thing to understand is that, uh, if someone is not a registered organ donor, the OPO, the family can still legally authorize, uh, the organ donation. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody is a registered organ donor legally, that is supposed to be binding, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you There's, you know, not uh, particularly transparent data on this. Certainly there are cases in which uh, even though this isn't supposed to happen, uh, you know, I, I, of course, uh, sometimes it does that, that a family may uh, object and an OPO may uh, defer to that. They're, they're, they're not supposed to, but certainly it happens. Uh, but of all the research uh, that I've seen, the biggest predictor of organ donation rates in any area uh, is This is going to sound wonky, but um, just on qualitative measures, what does the next of kin say about their interaction with the OPO? Uh, Which is to say, you know, you can be in one area with very high donation rates, another area with very low donation rates, uh, and you might think that that is going to be what the organ donation registration rates are. I should say is going to be predictive of what ultimate donation rates are, and it turns out in practice, uh, the best predictor, uh, you know, strongest uh, correlation to what donation rates actually are is Uh, this is going to sound vague, but the strength of how well the OPO is run, the management team. Sure. So uh, OPOs often uh, do not respond to all referrals. Uh, They they less likely respond uh, to, you know, black families versus white families. There's there's a legal mandate to respond to all referrals. But OPOs certainly don't respond to all referrals. And there is also highly variable uh, care uh, that is provided to the donor families. Uh, And depending on Uh, The quality of that care, uh, you know, was the OPO show up in a timely way? Did they uh, respond to the family's questions? Did the family feel like uh, the OPO was responding with compassion rather than, um, you know, uh, in in the worst uh, formations of it? You know, uh, you know, sometimes you'll hear an OPO called a a vulture or or, a bully. Uh, But even when it's not, you know, that extreme, if they don't seem, you know, uh, candidly, particularly competent or, Back to using Chairman Wyden's words: If if the process feels grossly mismanaged, uh, families are not going to say yes to donation. So, you know, uh, going back to your question about this, the donor hospitals, uh, if a patient dies in an organ donation-eligible way, the donor hospital uh, is in charge with referring that death to the OPO. The OPO is charged with responding in all cases. Again, they don't. Uh, uh, working with the family, providing the information they need, either the person was a registered organ donor and the OPO is supposed to work with them on facilitating it, uh, or the person was not a registered organ donor, and the OPO's job is to talk to them about uh donation is something that the uh, you know the deceased patient may have wanted. Uh and then I and then in either case if it the results in a yes are supposed to facilitate facilitate the organ recovery uh and then coordinate um uh the placement of that organ to, to transplant centers. Uh there's been for reasons of uh lax oversight and again chairman's words corrosis management uh and then um a lot of issues with archaic technology there is uh A lot of uh, inefficiency uh, is a kind way of saying it. The uh, federal government, uh, uh, HRSA, Health Resources Services Administration, is uh, part of one of the, you know, part of, uh, it's the agency at HGS that manages a a piece of this system. Uh, Research that they funded found that uh, despite 90% of Americans supporting organ donation, uh, only one in five medically viable uh, organ donors have their organs recovered. So we're going from 90% and yes to be clear on this. Uh, I know this is going to sound silly, but if you look it up, uh, in Gallup polls, that's higher than American support for puppies or ice cream. Uh, there's very little, uh, certainly in 2022, uh, that we have 90% support on, uh, and this is a life-saving issue. Um, and we're only recovering as, as, as little as 20% of potential donors. There's clearly uh, an unacceptable drop off, uh, with the, um, you know, ultimate uh, costs being to the uh, families who don't have life-saving organs, uh, which should be available for them.
0: Okay, thank you. Just I'll uh, fill in a few details. So, uh, mention of OPOs, there are uh, 57, uh, last I looked, in the country, and they're uh, defined by their uh, by a geographic uh, setting. There are about 250 transplant centers. Uh, relative to UNOS, uh, they've been the only contractor since 1986 um, to the feds to manage the, uh, this process. Uh, they've been awarded uh contract seven times since uh, that year. And all this is under the 84 law uh, of the Organ uh, Procurement and Transplant Network. So you did identify some problems um, and breakdown in uh, in the process from at least the upfront process of, of the actual facilitating the donation via UNOS organizations. But if you were to, and I realize this is an impossible uh, uh, question, and I'm sure highly irritating, but if you could identify, in your experience, what are some of the more typical or common problems beyond um, the initial contact, uh, let's say imperfections by UNOS, that uh, cause the, the limited number uh, of organs being transplanted? Sure. And, and again, there, there are problems
1: throughout, uh, and I sincerely hope in a few years to have an even more precise answer. One of the problems that we face now is the United States organ uh, procurement system is uh, uniquely opaque among mature international transplant uh, systems. In any other mature system in the country, you have uh, what uh, technocrats like myself would call process data, which is mm-hmm. to say, You know how many deaths were referred, eligible deaths were referred from a hospital to an OPO. You know how many the OPO approached, uh, how many in a timely manner. And you could identify, uh, excuse the pun, but more surgically, uh, where donors are are, are lost in the system, Uh, which isn't to say that we're blind now, but uh, having more transparency would let us be even more uh, precise uh, in in the way that we think about solutions. I think to understand this, um, it's actually helpful sometimes to take a step Back um, uh, and understand uh some broader context in the system. Sure. You gave the the legislative history in 1984, uh, uh sponsored by um uh Al Gore and and, and and Orrin Hatch. So you know this was all bipartisan from the beginning. Uh but the National Organ Transplant Act, you may refer to it, uh you may hear it referred to by you know, acronym NODA. Um uh that created a legislative infrastructure for the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, OPOs in some formation uh, preceded uh nota but the legislative infrastructure uh, has been around since 1984 uh so since that period of time um it's important to understand opos have geographic monopolies so there are no competitive pressures for opos to perform well candidly to perform better uh opos are uh historically have had and we can get to this later in the conversation uh some recent reforms are are aiming to address this but opios have had legally unenforceable performance metrics which is to say no matter how poorly an opio performed uh it uh it did not have as determined by federal judges the uh legal authority to take a contract from the OPO. so in addition to no competitive pressures for an opio there were also no uh you know regulatory pressures for an OPO to to provide the high service that the patients would need, uh and 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 candidly deserve. Uh and the other thing is OPOs are the only major program in healthcare uh that operate on what's called a cost reimbursement basis. Uh for people understanding how I define major the only other one I've uh uh, found is critical access hospitals at a much smaller level. But uh, so OPOs are um hundred percent reimbursed uh uh for for their costs. I mean with with, with a few things to be technical about it that are carved out as uh not allowable costs. But have this they basically have this um pretty unique structure in healthcare where there are no pressures for their own cost containment. Uh and certainly that leads to, as is now, um animating two bipartisan congressional investigations, a lot of fraud waste and abuse, uh or you know, there, there have been instances of even criminal Medicare fraud. Uh the bigger problem, actually, I think, candidly, on a day-to-day is that there is no pressures for intelligent allocation of resources. Uh, so there are no financial pressures for an OPO to do better, which is to say you can decide on January 1st what you want your budget to be. And whether you recover 100 organs or 500 organs that year, uh, you, you, you will still be reimbursed for whatever your costs were for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you take all of that together, you've had for uh, about 40 years – uh, a geographic monopoly for every OPO with no competitive pressures uh, inherent, I guess, inherent in a monopoly. No uh, regulatory pressures to perform better, and no financial pressures to perform better. So OPOs really have, uh, uh, in the absence of any of those, you know, really uh, healthy incentives uh, or, or or really any oversight, as was made clear at the Senate Finance hearing. Uh, the industry really has just kind of ossified, uh, and um, OPOs are highly variable. There is, depending on which year you're looking at, as much as a 470% variability between the best OPOs and the worst. If you look at uh, just the subset of uh, black donor families, there is a 10x variability between how well uh, OPOs recover uh, in neighboring OPOs, from one OPO to another, uh, just for the subset of of black donors. So when you understand all of this you've had for 40 years, just no accountability or oversight or, or, or pressures for uh improvement you also have had no transparency this you know uh, relates to the points that I, you know i was just making but uh opos historically have been allowed to self-interpret and self-report all of their own performance data unsurprisingly they all say that they're doing great every year mm-hmm. uh, an objective analysis would say that they they aren't uh but there's no there just hasn't never been any ability for uh the general public for researchers for congress or other oversight bodies to intervene and say you know what's happening isn't good enough and and we all deserve better but when you have this going on for 40 years it it shouldn't surprise us uh that uh we've landed in a world where there's such uh variability across opos which just would not be acceptable in any other uh you know um uh, sector of healthcare. uh and just to scale this what hhs projected uh when they put the new rule in place and for context the new rule is pretty basic instead of going instead of having opos self-interpret and self-report their own data which was not only um uh I- imprecise is a, is a is kind of a saying it but uh so problematic and so flawed that hs determined it was not legally enforceable um just closing the gap just by moving to objective data that the government already holds and ensuring that there isn't a 470 percent variability we're not talking about huge interventions and system redesign to make the best opos 10 times better than they are what we're talking about is having the opos that are 470 percent worse than their neighboring opos getting them uh just within some degree of statistical significance within you know just some stones throw away from what other opos Mm -hmm. have already established as possible that would lead to hs projections 7200 more lives uh every year uh just to the basic accountability
0: yeah interesting uh uh, thank you. I do encourage listeners to read uh, uh, the Chairman, Senator Wyden, again's opening statement because he does provide several examples, uh, transplanting wrong blood type organs, uh, organs um, transplanted with certain diseases, cancer amongst others, or and resulting in uh, transplant recipients developing disease, uh, organs uh, run over. Uh, by vehicles, missed flights, abandoned airports, uh, never picked up, et cetera, et cetera, And I also would recommend, relative to those that gave testimony, uh, read the testimony I found particularly helpful. Uh, this was by Dr. Uh, Locke, who's at University of Alabama Birmingham's uh, Transplant Institute. He gave um, a very forthright, I thought, candid, blunt uh, testimony uh, relative to their experience, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, organs that they'd received, particularly kidney organs that were just not, um, that had been damaged and just they were not able to, uh, transplant them or they were of no use. So let's go to, um, obviously, uh, your, your response is certainly set up and I'm sure you have in mind, uh, policy reforms and the one you, you made note of, which I think is very important and a good one to start and just to reemphasize and that is that reduce the variability in performance. Which was your last point, which would be tremendously helpful. Certainly a good place to start. And it of course, is always um, left, one is always left wondering how there could be such variability. It certainly cannot be uh, logically understood, so therefore uh, that variability should be uh, reduced. So if we can go from there, based on your experience and the work that your organization is doing, where are the policy reform opportunities? sure uh
1: it's a it's a very good question i like to do more than just complain about problems but 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 think about how to address these right. things so uh you know there there's two i think that that uh have really been uh centered in the last couple of months with all the congressional tension which i think would have transformative uh impact uh the first is um you know what you were just asking about which you know we had, had touched on earlier in the conversation but what uh what is called in the industry or technocrats would call opo process data which is to say um You know, instead of just telling us, how did you do every year and asking them for their scorecard? And again, historically, they used to be able to make up, uh, make up what the denominator was, uh, how many eligible deaths there were. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't trustworthy anyway, when you say how well did, did, did you do? But even if you move to a world where you have an objective understanding of, you know, the Greg, the OPO, the Greg runs, uh, Making these numbers up, of course, has sixty percent recovery rates, and the OPO that David runs has fifty-seven percent recovery rates. It might sound on the face of it that 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 you know Greg is better, and obviously numerically that uh, would be true. Uh, what every OPO will tell you is that you know, uh, well, their service area is this unique snowflake, and all of these things have to be accounted for, and there's all these problems and. You know, um, you know uh, what we do here is not, you know, possible. Uh, what they do there is not possible here. All of these things are, you know, uh, addressable uh, if what we had is uh, the OPO process data. So if uh, if I have a hundred referrals uh, from a hospital running an OPO, uh, we should have full visibility into how many I responded to uh how many uh did I respond to in a timely manner. Not just am I providing high high quality care in general, but are there uh differences uh in the way I'm serving my patient populations, whether that be by race and ethnicity, whether that by be by rural status, uh, whether that be, you know, one hospital uh versus another. Again, OPOs are monopoly providers. Mm-hmm. So if you're at uh you know, people don't choose where, where they're gonna uh die uh and if they have made what should be legally uh um, uh, legally valid end-of-life wishes that you want to become an organ donor, uh, it shouldn't be up to the OPO whether or not they want to show up and honor your um, legally valid end-of-life wishes. These are the things that not only would help with accountability to have this process data, but would also help to answer a lot of the uh, other policy questions that are going on. So I'll give you one example um, that um, listeners who are listening to this podcast, I imagine, may have some familiarity with the organ donation system. Uh and they'll probably hear, you know, a, a common refrain is that, uh, well, OPOs only recover the organs; it's up to the transplant centers uh, right. to ultimately transplant the organs. So, you know, when I'm an OPO and I uh, recover an organ, I, I put it out for organ offer. It may be rejected by the transplant center, and an OPO will say that isn't my fault; it's the transplant center's fault. Uh, which, what things like process data would allow us to do is to understand, for example, on clinically similar organs uh is david twice as good at placing the same clinically similar you know clinically similar organ as as greg is uh these are important questions to start to answer not just for the basic accountability to ensure not just so we have effective performance and equitable performance uh but to understand across a multi-stakeholder chain uh where where the problems are and where the drop-off was because i can promise you i've been in this industry long enough to know that no matter what, everyone has uh, an explanation that they uh, fervently believe, or at least uh, enthusiastically uh, try to sell, that it is somebody else's fault. Uh, and until we have the transparency where we see where the break, where the drop-offs are in the chain, where things are breaking down, uh, it's you know, uh, it, it's it's hard to have um, you know really. Uh, informed policy solutions uh you know uh on some of the discrete pieces of this i'm not saying that we're blind now to policy solutions but what i'm saying is uh as sort of iterative policy development going forward uh the idea that we've been blinded in america to how the system works and where the, the, the drop-offs are is has been a, a, a rate limiting factor um uh, to say the least uh the other really important um uh policy solution uh yes yeah, so there were two is uh the system has been managed since 1986 by Unos, uh, which is a federal uh, contractor which has operated as a monopoly uh, since 1986, mm-hmm. and they are, uh, you know, a, a, to your great introduction to this call. Uh, there was just a August 3rd uh, bipartisan hearing from Senate Finance Committee looking at a lot of problems and abuses uh, within the industry, which uh, Unos, uh, in the Senate's estimation, has uh overlooked ignored or or in many ways uh enabled uh a lot of the problems have been that this has been a uncompetitive monopoly contract dating back to 1999 forbes called unos uh a cartel uh in the way that they had operated in anti-competitive ways uh in their words using you know um bullying of their opponents and lobbying to solidify their contract. Uh, That was back in 1999. As recently as just a couple of years ago, the Senate, uh, excuse me, the New York Times editorial board, uh, you know, weighed in this saying there is an astounding lack of oversight and accountability in the nation's creaking monopolistic organ donation uh, system, uh, letting hundreds of thousands of uh, potential donations uh, go to waste. Uh, So much of this has been because of a monopoly structure uh where you have uh, a stakeholder uh you know with so many inherent conflicts of interest which has spent years defending a system uh that to me uh is indefensible uh the way this has worked and all the ways in which it's it's failed patients uh and if you have meaningful oversight and accountability and you have best-in-class uh contractors uh serving the system and serving patients i think that is the best way to ensure that uh going forward um, we have not just the transparency uh, uh, and accountability uh, that are needed uh, on any given day or in any given month, but to ensure that we have uh, thoughtful, iterative policy going forward.
0: Okay, thank you again. So I'll press you relative to the um, uh, the recent Senate uh, finance hearing again, in which they note uh, their two-and-a-half-year study. They said they reviewed 100,000 UNOS documents, more than half a million pages, et cetera. So – where would you like to see Senate Finance go with their – so what would you like to see them do legislatively? I mean, if you were to uh, say specifically and – and I'm assuming it has to do with moreover transparency uh, as it relates to the process and, of course, uh, getting performance uh, more consistent between and amongst the participants.
1: I think the most important thing um, – and Senator Elizabeth Warren said this uh, uh, very clearly in the hearing that um, – you know should lose the contract uh her words were you know should not be anywhere near uh the organ donation system in america the most important thing to my mind that senate finance committee uh can do and this was uh published as part of their um i'll call them interim findings they they, the chairman was clear that uh, they're nowhere close to done on this investigation, but they published an interim report and the recommendations were, were clear uh, that uh, the what's called the OPTN, Organ Procurement Transplantation Network contract, which UNOS has always held, the terms OPTN and UNOS often get conflated. The contract is called the OPTN, UNOS is the, the contractor. Yeah. But the OPTN contract uh, needs to be uh, broken up and competitively bid out. Uh, and this uh, the timing of it uh, is, is is perfect um you know HHS is going into um, the contracting I mean these are time cycles uh UNOS contract uh, uh, runs into next year uh, earlier this year i believe it was in in April uh, HHS or technically HRSA as the agency uh, put out a request for information uh, you know about how they should structure the contract this time uh, so that to me is the absolute most important thing uh that senate finance committee or any other congressional office can do and it's uh, a recommendation that's already been welcomed by uh a, a a wide range of uh patient advocates and you know former uh, hhs officials um it's 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 clear uh what hhs needs to do is break up this contract uh and and bid it out uh competitively
0: i should note and, and you you inferred this if you go to the um the hearing page on this um August 3rd meeting, there are uh, on that page a number of uh, uh, related or associated documents, supportive documents relative to the Finance Committee's work. And those are all worth uh, reviewing, as you implied. Um, what sort of, uh, I'll ask uh, this question. Um, you made reference uh, relative to how the U.S. forwards this work uh, in a, in a comparatively less transparent manner. So that begs the question, what are uh, other like or rich countries doing uh, regarding and transplantation that you think would be uh, useful or instructive for the uh, U.S. to either consider or adopt?
1: You know, I, I, with apologies for repeating myself, it really is transparency is going to start to uh, enable that question. International comparisons have been uh, difficult, uh, not just because of U.S. opacity, but there are uh, clearly, very different um, uh, death rates uh, you know, from one country to the next in terms of the, the sorts of deaths that medically qualify for uh, organ donation eligibility. So you know one of the things you'll hear often from uh, uh, industry lobbyists or or you know crisis comms folks is that, well, in America, we have the highest organ donation per capita rates in the country. They don't use those words. they say the best uh, sorry, in the world, the words they use are the best system in the world. Mm-hmm. i I what is? True, just factually true, is that in, depending on which country you're comparing us to, America may have 30 to 40 uh, times as many opioid deaths per capita uh, as European countries. Uh, that I saw from a few years ago, and I I believe logically this this should be bigger now. Right. Uh, we have 25 times as many gun deaths uh, as other uh, high-income right. nations. We've got um, uh, someone's going to fact-check me. This is directionally right. I'm sure not exactly right, but I believe something like twice as many suicides and fatal car accidents. Uh, so what? really uh uh unfortunately the industry has really has been celebrating and i i I find this pretty uh distasteful uh is uh these really tragic public health trends in america uh which are uh far greater uh than we have in other countries we have these outsized uh donation eligible death rates by way of the opioid uh, epidemic Mm -hmm. by way of the the gun death epidemic in this country uh so you know what people have tried to do internationally is look at apples to apples comparisons. If there's 100 Americans in a room and, and 100 French people in another room, uh, and 15 Americans die in an organization eligible way, and you know two, uh, I forget which country, Frenchmen die uh, in an organization eligible way, uh, it's not uh, reasonable to say, well, we recovered, you know, five Americans donated and one French, you know, Frenchman donated, so therefore we're five times better. Um, those numbers obviously are, are, are just meant as examples, but that has been the sort of directional thinking that we've seen. So if you're asking me to prepare uh, to try to understand which countries that, that we can learn from or adopt pra- you know, practices from, I'd say the first thing that, that we need to do is to have enough transparency to even really start to have those informed conversations.
0: Good point. Good point. And, uh, I didn't get into this when we opened, but maybe we'll close out with, with this question. And, and you, you reminded me with, um, Opioid deaths, overdoses, uh, fentanyl epidemic, etc., and, of course, suicides. And, you know, our public health population health statistics are comparatively horrible. Um, the demand, uh, this this problem is even more pronounced because of these statistics. Um, so, in the U.S., performance in, in donating, procuring and donating, becomes even more important because of these statistics. So, could you address or make some comments about um, uh, where we are relative to the demand for such?
1: Sure. Uh, the uh, supply, to use a crude term, it is. Nowhere close to uh, uh, enough to uh, meet demand, depending on which numbers you use. The number that we often use is 33 deaths per day of Americans, uh, you know, dying, waiting for a transplant. That is an understatement Uh, is often by the industry. uh, You know, uh, you'll hear a number even less than that. There's a lot of accounting games played in terms of uh, who are who are uh, considered uh, dying in need of a transplant. So if you have I mean uh there's probably something like half a million americans on on dialysis not every one of them necessarily would would qualify for uh, a transplant or, or or would be healthy enough to benefit from one uh but only 90,000 americans uh are currently on the waiting list for kidney transplant which is to say there is a much greater need uh than there is uh Uh, A supply to meet that need, which means it is competitive to even get on the waiting list. Uh, So, you know, uh, I've already talked about some personal story in this uh, call. My father received a heart transplant after waiting for five years. Uh, I have another aunt who received a transplant and I have another aunt who unfortunately died waiting for a transplant. And when I say waiting, I use that term uh, uh, colloquially, she never qualified for the waiting list. So the industry, organ donation industry, as they often try to minimize the death toll, wouldn't include her. And they'd say some smaller number of deaths every day. Uh, her, her death was real. Uh, she needed a transplant and she died and we warned her. Uh, that's no different than if she had made the waiting list and died. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are to my mind, just completely accounting games. So, uh, the numbers you might hear, uh, you might hear something like 20 deaths every day uh that number refers to people who are on the waiting list and die while they're on the waiting list the number we often use and this varies year by year i believe last year it was 32 americans die every day because they are removed from the waiting list because they died or they have become uh what is termed too sick to transplant most of those patients then die subsequently and then there is an even bigger number which i truly don't even know how to quantify uh, of patients uh who never who need a transplant would benefit from a transplant and never uh, reach the waiting list at all and not only is uh that tragedy no matter who those patients are but there's a lot of inequity uh in terms of access to the waiting list so uh you know that that becomes uh, you know there's equity issues throughout the the industry if you're trying to figure out where in the process to my mind it's most inequitable uh i would say an access to uh the waiting list. I mean, it, 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 the other thing I'll say is uh, in sort of donor family treatment, uh, opioid treatment of donor families, but there is, uh, you know, it, this huge subset of patients, and I don't know how to quantify it because there isn't data on this who need transplants, never reach the waiting list, and then die, and they do not show up in industry accounting of how many deaths we're waiting. So when you're asking about supply-demand issues, uh, you know, um, the best way that I can explain it uh, or, or start to quantify what's possible is The federal government's own research found that we're only recovering organs from as few as one in five potential donors. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you uh, if you optimize that and I'm not expecting any system to be perfect, but I will remind you that 90 percent of Americans support organ donation that we're recovering from only 20 Mm percent is just truly tragedy. Uh, So even if you're, you know, getting halfway uh, to, you know, if you're 50 percent instead of the the 20 percent, we're talking on the order of tens of thousands of additional lives that be saved every year.
0: -hmm, So just to uh, you do make a good point again, relative to um, however well phrased or not baking the denominator really distorts uh, trying to understand the reality of the situation. Uh, so with that, Greg, uh, we're at our time. Uh, I, I will say I'll be personally certainly very interested to see uh, where the Congress goes relative to this issue beyond or in addition to all the work uh, the Senate Finance Committee is doing. So with any luck, we'll see some progress and maybe we can come back to this subject over the next several months um, and revisit and see what progress we can make uh, from a policy perspective. So with that, Greg, I want to say thank you again.
1: We really appreciate you having me on and uh, you're focused on this, on the issue. And I'll say for, apologies for apologize for the plug. Any listeners who want to learn more, uh, our website is organized.org uh, and uh, uh you know, uh, always happy to, to connect with any, uh, anyone who wants to be engaged
0: on this. No, I, that's certainly fine. I appreciate your noting. Thank you again, Greg. Thanks, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.